All right, well, it's a good morning to, to be together. We're going to be picking up this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We've been digging through uh, the book of 1 Peter, just walking straight through it for the summer. And today we'll be in verses 8 through 17 of 1 Peter. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the seats here for you. And if you don't have one at home, we want to make sure that you do. And so take that home, and uh, it's our gift to you. Uh, we've been uh, in this series, we're calling it Sojourners. A sojourner is somebody who uh, stays somewhere for a temporary period of time. And that's ultimately what we are as Christians, is we are here for a temporary period of time. But our eternal home is heaven with our Lord, and we're going to, to be with him. And so this series, we've been calling it Sojourners and learning how to live with that mindset. Uh, but at the same time, what we're going to do is for the next few weeks together, we're going to have a mini-series within the greater series on suffering. I believe that this is really important for all of us because we're all going to suffer. hate to break it to you, but we're all going to suffer and have difficulty in our lives. And Peter is speaking here directly to Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he's talking to them as they are in the midst of great suffering. They are being mistreated for their faith to a degree that we could not possibly even imagine here in America. They are being ridiculed, they are being threatened, they are having property taken away from them, they're being burned alive as human torches in Nero's courtyard, they're being wrapped in animal skins and dogs sent after them so that they could be devoured, they are losing loved ones, close people to them, and Peter Peter is speaking directly to them, to those people in their midst and in our midst today who suffer for their faith. And so let me ask you, have you suffered for your faith or have you suffered just in general and if so, this is, this is for you. Some of you, you're in the midst of difficulty right now. This is for you. Some of you, not right now, but you will face difficulty. This is for you. And guess what? We're not going to look at how can we avoid difficulty. We're going to look at how we can get through difficulty and cooperate with God and seeing it used for His glory and for our good. And so we're going to be looking today at suffering to bless We're going to then look at suffering to understand. We're going to look at suffering to serve. And then we're going to look at suffering to worship on our fourth week. And so today we look at suffering to bless. Isn't that exactly what you think about when you think about being mistreated by somebody? Is how can I bless them? Bless your heart. Thank you for for mistreating me. That's That's what we're looking at. It seems absurd, doesn't it? Just at first glance, that kind of seems absurd. It it makes no sense whatsoever. It's counterintuitive. But listen, that's what our world needs. Can I say that again? That is exactly what our world needs. They don't need a faith that makes sense. We in the Christian world take so much time just working so hard on this thing we call apologetics. Let's try to make it work and so they can understand it and, and, and try to help it make sense for them. I don't know that that's necessarily what they need. I personally have never explained somebody into the kingdom. Rather, when they see something that doesn't make any sense and they're scratching their head, historically, that's when our faith gets the greatest traction. When people say, I, I don't, it's crazy. I, I can't explain it away. I can't explain this. Something unseen is happening in their midst. And we know what that is. We know who that is. That's, that's the Lord. And so today, we look at chapter, eight, or chapter 3, 8 through 17. 
And it starts in, in, in verse 8 with this one word. It starts with the word, finally. Because for the past two Sundays, as we've been looking at the previous two sections here, uh, we, we've seen Peter's instruction on how to respond to mistreatment in the government and, and in the home. And, and he instructs us we're, we're to show honor, we're to obey, we're to uh, follow the leadership. Uh, you don't need their uh, approval, he says. He says, God is your judge, he's your value giver, he is the one who approves you. You are his chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a people for his own possession. And so in light of that, in verses 8 and 9, he says, he says this, let's read it together. Finally, all of you. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. Now that's crazy talk right there, huh? That, I mean, that's craziness. Verse 9 sums up the entire passage. It says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, on the contrary, what? Bless. We don't roll like that. We bless. And that is not an easy task. Let me just say that. That is not an easy task. But we have God, the Holy Spirit, living in and through us. And so it can be done. He, he spends verses 9 through 17 of this section, 8 through 17, that we're looking at. But it's interesting that first he opens with verse 8 and he's talking about Christian community. And I want to spend actually over half of our time just talking about Christian community together. In in verse 8, he talks about Christian community because here's the deal. If we're going to be mistreated out there, we better be treated well in here, right? Right? And so we need to focus on that. I'll never forget when I was in middle school, was going into the, the, the very beginning of middle school, which for me personally was just the toughest season. Everything's changing. You're changing. It's crazy. And you're just a complete, total dweeb. You look weird. It, that was me. And I remember it was a tough season in particular for me because we, uh, going into sixth grade, we moved into a new house, into a new, ha- new neighborhood, and into a new school. You go from fifth grade where you were the big man on campus into sixth grade where you're passing uh, these guys with beards, you know, and it's just crazy intimidating. The finger painters, and now it's guys with beards looking at you spouting insults. And I'll never forget the first day walking up to my school bus and uh, had to walk up the hill in my brand new neighborhood, new kid on the block, and I was just completely mocked, pushed around by a couple of upperclassmen, uh, led by this one guy who had uh, uh, this complex he was the neighborhood napoleon you know what i mean he was this guy who who compensated for his little stature with his big mouth kind of guy and uh, that was him and and i'll never forget just being pushed around and bullied and four-eyed freak which isn't a big deal now i kind of you know i think my glasses look all right but back then i was like i had colin powell glasses these big square glasses and it was not it was not good i'll just i was so hurt I remember at school the whole day just feeling awful. I remember getting off the school bus at the end of the day, and it happened all over again, and so it was fresh again. And I remember walking uh, down the hill and into my new house, and my mother is waiting for me, and she immediately notices my watery eyes, and she hugs me, and I just lost it. I mean, I was just sobbing. I told her everything that I'd been through, and I remember my mom crying with me, crying for me. 
she then assured me of how much she, she loved me. And I remember the bullying happened, for, you know, happened for, for months. But my mom at the end of school always responded the same with hugs and, and love and affection and assurance. And, and let me just say this, that I survived their disapproval out there because I had her approval in the home, right? I survived their disapproval because I had her approval. I survived their mistreatment because she treated me very well. And, and, and Peter opens up this 10-verse section on how to treat your mistreaters with just one verse that's super powerful, a call to Christians. And he says, what? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. That's how we are to act towards one another. And we will survive the world's disapproval because we have our church family's approval and ultimately our Lord's approval. And that's how he loves to display it is through the church family. And so we should be able to walk in here or wherever the church is gathered and we should be hugged, loved, and and cried with, cared for. We should excuse me, feel secure in our relationships. We should feel like there is no need to perform. You can be imperfect and you can be loved because church is family, right? Church is is family. And so Peter says in in chapter 2, verse 11, if you remember, he says that you are sojourners and, and exiles in this world. You're sojourners and exiles. But Ephesians chapter 2, 19 says this. Just listen to this. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, which is the same original word in the Greek for sojourners. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so he's saying, out there, you're a stranger. You're a sojourner. You're you're different. But in here, you're a part of the, the family. You're part of the household. In here, there's nothing but love for you. Your church family gathered should be a refuge for you, should be a comfort for you. The the Christian community should be a place where you're not going to to face insult and hostility like you do outside. The Christian community is a place where you love and embrace. And so what does he say here? Does he say, so if your church isn't a refuge for you, well, then leave and find another church. Does he say that? No. Instead, what he does is he focuses in on the inner qualities that are necessary to create that kind of community. Do you get that? That is so important. He says, don't go find, he doesn't say, go find another church where you can get that. He says, make that right here by you doing these things. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, have a tender heart and a humble mind. Have I ever told you how much I hate church hopping? Have I told you that? I hate church hopping. I believe that God hates church hopping. Now, there's a big difference between church hopping and church shopping. Church shopping should be, I believe, taken very seriously. If you move to a new area, you've got to find a church within proximity to you so you can really share and live life with those people. That's a very serious matter. You're finding family. It's like I remember when I was younger and I was ready to find my girl. I was going to find my spouse and we were going to start a family. It was a very serious matter. Do I put a ring on this girl's finger or not? It was serious. I don't take that lightly. I was planning to only do that one time. It's a big deal. Church shopping should be taken seriously. 
But this idea of church hopping is this practice that's very unique to the North American Christian subculture. So unique. And it's so contrary to the gospel. So contrary to the gospel. We have so many churches in North America that if we believe in our own opinion that our church underperforms, or if we get offended, or we get upset, or the most popular one that I hear all the time across churches all over the country is, my needs aren't being met, then we can jump ship and find another church because that's an option. Unlike the Church of Philippi, which had the Church of Philippi, right? We have all kinds of options. Isn't that just so inconsistent with the gospel? Where Jesus loves us regardless of our performance. And when we don't perform, he doesn't bail on us, does he? He sticks it out. That's why Jesus will say in John 13, 35, he says, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I deeply love my wife. And because of that, from time to time when she offends me, I don't go find another wife. No, I love her. I stick it out and we work through it. And in, in, in Christian America, Christians have lots and lots and lots of exes, don't they? Ex-churches. That is. He says, by this you will know, but they will know that you're my disciples. If you bail on your wife and go find a more attractive one, wow, he really loved that first one. No. Statistics will say in North America, only 35% of new members in a church will stay more than five years. I mean, 65% move on. Can you imagine instead if we worked through our difficulties, because they're going to come. Can you imagine if we worked through our difficulties and displayed the hard work of of love? What we would learn from that and what the world would see in that would be an amazing testimony. If church isn't a refuge for you, you don't go find another church. Instead, he says, these are the inner qualities that you need to create that kind of community where, though you're mistreated out there, you're treated well in here. You are the ones who are going to make your church a refuge. You participate in your church family in such a way where you do to them what you wish they were doing to you. I think that's in the Bible somewhere, right? Do unto others what you would have them, Matthew seven twelve. So how do we make our church family a, a refuge? By displaying the virtues of verse 8. And we can do that because we have God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us. These really are reflective largely of the fruits of the Spirit. We can only do this by the fruits of the Spirit. The first one is unity of mind or or like-mindedness. And and this, this is foundational for community of any kind, right? Not just the church, but any kind of community. We've got to be united on something. Something has to unite us. And for us as believers, it's not our ethnicity, like the Sons of Italy. It's not our gender, like the Lions Club. It's not life stage, like we're, we're college students and we have a college social. It's not a team, like Red Sox Nation. No, it's something much deeper. It's unity of mind. It's what our mind is set on. And our mind is set on who? On Christ, on Jesus. 
and his mission of making disciples. Our mind is set on his glory, a life of worship. Our mind is set on his heart, love your neighbors as yourself. Our mind is set on his word. We are unified around, we want to follow the scriptures. And and in the church community, we're to focus on what unites us. But so often in church communities, don't we seem to, to focus on what divides us? And churches are known for what they're against rather than what they're for and what unites them. Like minor doctrinal differences, like life stage, like ethnicity. And one thing we've been pushing really hard against as a church is all those things that aren't really gospel dividing us. We want to be united not on our skin color, not on our life stage, not on our neighborhood. We want to be united on Christ. And if we can have unity of mind together, we're, we're going to benefit. I know it's difficult. It's really hard, isn't it? To, to seek to be unified with people who are way different than you. Our natural drift is towards homogenous units, people who are just like us. People of the same races and ethnic backgrounds often will hang together. Just, it's just natural. Same lifestyle stage, they, they hang together. Economics, they hang together. And we want to push really hard against this. So I would say this. Make a point, every one of us, to seek to connect with people who are different than you. Not that you don't have friends who are similar than you. Young moms need to connect with young moms. But, but make a point to connect with people who are, are different than you. And display the unity that comes only through Christ. The unity of the mind. Unity that is set on the Lord. Here's the next virtue he gives us is sympathy. The idea here is that we can, can share the, the whole range of emotions with each other. We can share it all. So, so 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 will say this. It says, if one member suffers, speaking of the church, all suffer together. If one member is uh, rejoicing, that we all rejoice together, right? And, and, and so how do you create a, a, a church community of substance, and one that's a, a refuge? We hurt with each other when we hurt, and we allow ourselves to enter into the pain. We like to block ourselves off from pain unless it just comes to the point which is so unavoidable, right? We don't want to feel pain. What does Jesus do with Mary and Martha? He weeps with them, doesn't he? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He knew what he was going to do, didn't he? I'm going to bring that man out of the grave. You don't need to cry anymore, but what does he do? He sets a precedent for us, and he pauses, and he cries with them weeps with them for us we need to weep with each other when it's hard we need to enter into the pain rather than run from it we need to weep we also rejoice with people we need to be excited we need to enter into other people's victory not just be excited when we're having some kind of victory but be excited when other people are having victories and everywhere in between the the weeping and the the celebration we need to enter into that we sympathize right the next one he gives us is, is, is brotherly love. It's the, the Greek word philadelphos, right? Which is where we get the, the, the city Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love, right? So uh, he says brotherly love is, is, is the, the next virtue. It's called to love each other like brothers and sisters, like, like family. And again, we're family. And, and there's this unique Commitment that you just can't shake off your family, can you? Anybody ever try it? Like, get rid of, just leave me alone, right? You just can't shake off your family. Uh, when I was younger, my brother Nick was the most annoying person on the planet to me. I just, oh my goodness, I just, it just drove me insane, right? 
And now I see my two sons, and it's the same deal. And I just totally feel uh, my, 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 my son Isaiah's pain when his little brother is getting up under his skin. But I also feel the younger one's pain when he really wants to be just like his, his big brother. I'll never forget my mom saying, you are going to have to learn to love each other. Anybody? You're going to be together the rest of your life. You're brothers, right? And I've learned. <laughs> and today, I'm at this place where my brother, you've got family, right? For many of you, your family, you're just with them, and immediately, you don't have to, no pretense. You're just with them, and you, you're just, you can let your guard down, let your hair down, whatever you do, just be comfortable because they're, they're, they're family. And, and the Lord wants us to have this kind of relationship with each other. And, and family members have this obligation to each other, don't they? You just have this, I have to help them when they're in, in trouble. So I remember my my, my uh, youngest son, uh, middle guy, Luca, he, he had this accident a few years ago. It was the most horrifying moment of mine and my wife's life. He had a knife just slice his face open, wide open. It was terrible. And I remember we had family in Western Mass that just felt there's obligation. I have to be there. And so they just rushed over. They were family, right? But at the same time, we also had some other family that showed up and helped out. And that was our, our church family here in, in Boston. Because we're learning to live like family. That means we're praying for each other. It means we offer companionship in the, in the difficult times. We offer meals, child care, helping hand, whatever we can do. Especially in this city that is so unbelievably transient. People come in from all over the place. Most people or many people in this city don't have blood relatives close. And so that's where that brotherly love among Christians becomes so important. Brotherly love. The next one he gives us is a, a tender heart, which means that your heart is soft towards one another. And I can honestly say that my heart is soft towards you, church family. I, I can honestly say that when I think about you, there's this deep love and this concern and this affection. And when you hurt, I'm hurting. When you celebrate, I celebrate. When you struggle, I, I feel it too. And, and if you don't have that, and if you're kind of indifferent to your church family, pray for it. I'm not going to say force it, but, but pray for it. Spend time with people, and it, it, starts, to, it starts to come. And, and God wants to give that to you. He wants you to have a tender heart towards each other. Another one he gives us here, the last virtue in the list, is a humble mind. And so in order for us to create the community that people desperately need, to create a, a family, we must have, he says, a, a humble mind. Now, humility is not a lack of self-confidence where you're walking around with your head to the ground all the time. And instead, humility is a, a lowliness and posture of your mind where you don't think too highly of yourself. That's what God wants for you. We don't, we don't think too highly of ourselves. When it's us or them, we choose them. Right? We give preferential treatment and meet their needs. And, and I love how, you know, with, with the Lord, if, if we'll meet other people's needs, he loves to meet our needs. And, you know, in their Greek culture, this was, this was not a virtue. It was a flaw. Humility was a flaw. You fought your way to the top. It's kind of like that in, in the business world, in a sense, here today. But it was a major flaw for them in that culture. But in the Christian community, Humility is it's a, it's a virtue. You don't need to fight your way to the, to the top. Why? Because God does the exaltation, right? 
He exalts the, the lowly in heart. We've already established throughout the course of this book our identity in Christ that he says you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people called out for his own possession. And so since God handles the exaltation, you just give other people preferential treatment all the time. You have a humble mind. And God takes care of the exaltation. He handles that. You don't need to exalt yourself. You exalt yourself nine times out of ten, people are looking at you like, who do you think you are? Let God handle that. So these are the virtues that, that Peter calls us to display. And if each of us can, can seek to display these virtues, can you imagine the kind of church family that we would become? We're a work in process. He, he's working on us and doing a good work. God's building a church family all around us, one that can be a great support so that though the world is hostile out there, we have a home in here. And not just literally in this building, but when we're together as family. I told you guys before uh, that we used to partner with a, a church planting movement in Central America, primarily in Honduras and Guatemala, right on, on the border. And we had this little church that the first time I went, they, it was just a, a little missionary couple that was living there. And uh, learning in the neighborhood, we got them a house, and, and they had this little house. And next time we came back, they led their neighbor to the Lord. And the next time we came back, they had 40 believers and had already started two other churches just over the border from the village in Honduras into Guatemala and then just around the corner at another small, very small, uh, poor community. And I remember we would go back and, and we would do pastoral training and care for the pastors there and, and just give them some theological training and care and love. And one time I went back and we did this pastor's conference and we also uh, were able to participate in their very first baptism. It was so amazing. And these little congregations came together and we walked through this cornfield, just kept going. It felt like we were going miles through a cornfield until eventually we came out along this riverbank and there was this massive funky looking tree like I'd never seen before. And uh, we, we sat there and, and talked for a little while, and people just started pouring in. And there was a, three guys playing guitar, like a mariachi band, Amazing Grace. It was so amazing. And uh, we just had a sweet time t- together. And then we baptized 23 believers, their very first church baptism. It was an amazing celebration. There was singing. There was food. There was tears uh, of joy and testimony and hugs and, and, and laughter. It was an amazing time. We did that through into the evening, and then we went back home and slept and then woke up the next morning, and, and it seemed like one by one by one, we had a number of them come back to this ministry house, and many of them were crying because word had traveled very fast back to their families that they had turned to follow the Lord Jesus, and they were, most of them were of this weird Catholic-slash-voodoo faith mixture they were very loyal to. And if you turned from that, uh, many families would disown you. And lots of these people were disowned, kicked out of homes, and they came back one by one after uh, having a difficult time with their family members through the night, just, just crying. And I just remember this church family just wrapping around them and just crying, and praying in Spanish. And I wish I knew what they were saying, but it was just this most beautiful, amazing time together. And they just cared for them. And, and they prayed, and they They planned how we're going to meet these needs, and they provided. Their church was a refuge for them. It was just so organic and so natural and so beautiful. And listen, can I just remind you, though, we're not maybe necessarily facing that, 
this world, this nation, which was once deemed a Christian nation, is growing increasingly hostile to our Christian faith. And so we must create a refuge. That's why Hebrews 10 will tell us that we need to not forsake doing this, gathering together, and all the more as the day draws near. Because if you read the Bible and you know the Bible, it tells us as the day draws near, when we see the Lord face to face, it's only going to get harder. And so more and more we need to gather together and we need to be a family and create a refuge so that we can not just survive, but we can, we can thrive. And so how do you view Christian family gatherings like this? Do you walk in and say, what am I going to get today? Or do you walk in and you say, how can I fill and how can I pour into some other person? And again, just one person is all you need to do. Do for one person what you wish you could do for every person. Andy Stanley said that. I thought it was amazing. Do for one person what you wish you could do for every person. And if we all do that, what an amazing church family we will become. What if we showed up looking around with eyes of how can we serve and how can we support and how can we care and how can we provide refuge for people who are hurting by asking good questions of people, by, by laughing with people and hugging people and crying with people and leaving this place and going and eating with people rather than just going home and kicking up our feet and watching a game. It's much needed and all the more as the day draws near. And then when we do that, we can respond well to hostility out there. And so let's, let's keep going just a little bit longer and see how to respond well to the hostility out there. Verses 9 through 17, he starts, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This is an essential summary of what Peter has been uh, giving us all throughout for the past uh, few times we've gathered together. He just kind of summarizes what he's been talking about. And the big idea is that if someone mistreats you, particularly for your faith, don't repay evil for evil, but instead, what's the key word there? Instead, bless, right? Instead, bless. It's, it's the word eulogio from where we get the word eulogy, right? Which means at a eulogy, you stand up and you speak well about somebody. Speak highly of somebody. Is that how you respond when somebody messes with you? Messes with your family? Treats you poorly? Do you give a eulogy? Let me talk about how great this person is. They just treated me terrible. He says, that's what we do, eulogio, right? Or do you look for opportunities to talk about how awful they are? Or by simply being silent. Hey, do you know so-and-so? Yep. What, 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 do, you, what do you know about him? I cannot say. I'm a Christian, right? You ever seen that? And by saying nothing, you're saying everything you need to say, right? So I cannot say. I'm going to bless, right? No, he says no. You say something nice. You say something honoring. You honor the people who don't honor you, right? Which requires, again, a lot of self-control, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. He goes on, he says, for to this you were called. What? I was called to treat people. Well, who treat me bad? Yep. He says that you may obtain a blessing. You were called to be a blessing. All the way from the beginning of the Bible, in in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram, what does he say? He says, I have blessed you so that you will be a blessing. 
That's why you're blessed. And as Christians, are we blessed? You might not think you're blessed monetarily. You might not be blessed with the health that you want. But you're blessed with all that you need for all of eternity in Jesus Christ. And he says you're blessed so that you can be a blessing. So that you can be a blessing. And again, that's easy to do when people treat you really well. Well, thank you. Let me do something for you. But when they treat you bad, treat you poorly, that's when your faith really shines. That's when people start to scratch their head. When people treat you like you're worthless, you treat them like they're priceless. Because they are. They're made in the image and likeness of God. And when you do that, watch what God does. Watch how God loves to do that, to melt hearts, to melt anger, and to change people. And then in verses 10 through 12, he then quotes from Psalm 34. Some powerful words that have stood the test of time. In verse 10, he says, This kind of living will help you to love life and to see good days if you live like this. In other words, running around seeking revenge and, and trying to get people back, bad-mouthing people, demanding that they treat you better, that's not going to make you feel better, is it? It's just going to make you feel more miserable. You ever got caught up in that cycle? It just escalates. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But if you live by these commands, you say, I'm not even going to enter into that mess. I'm just going to treat them well. What happens? It says you're going to enjoy life. You're going to have good days. You know the people who, they, could, they fight with somebody all the time. They're always fighting with somebody. Are they enjoying life? Nope. They're not enjoying life. They're just entering into the mess. Verse 11, turn away from evil and do good. And so again, pay mistreatment with treating well. And that really is, is just a recap of his instructions to the, the slaves and, and wives from the, the previous verses. He says, seek peace and pursue it. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers? That, that needs to be descriptive of us, that, that we're peacemakers. Is it, is it just me, or does it seem like in the public arena, Christians are often looking for a fight or an issue, right? I don't know, maybe it's just me. It doesn't seem like Christians are often viewed as, as peacemakers. Put them on television, they're mad at somebody, somebody's mistreating them. We need to demand this civil liberty. Again, I've never argued somebody to Jesus. Never. But I have loved people towards Jesus and treated them well, and they say something's different here. If you're always looking to pick a fight and responding to others who are picking a fight with you, the anger just escalates, right? But what does Jesus do when people mistreated him? We saw at the end of the previous chapter, he didn't do much of anything. He just let him go, right? And it just deflated him. It just de-escalates and just ends up blessing them and dying for them and for the sin. How can you this week bless people who mistreat you? I'm reading this great commentary that Pastor Ryan gave me from this lady named Karen Jobes. And, and she mentions one of her students. She's a professor. And, and she says, I had this student who was a soldier. And in the barracks, every night, uh, he would read his Bible and he would pray before, before going to sleep. And one evening, you know, people always joke him, one evening, one of the soldiers took a muddy boot and just threw it at him while he's in there praying in his, in his barrack. But that soldier who threw the boot woke up the next morning to his boots cleaned off and polished right beside his bed. He just said, I'm not entering into the mess, I'm just going to treat him well. 
And she said that that soldier's testimony was that people started to trust in Jesus and, and, and learn about the Lord from the testimony of this soldier who they then inquired, what's going on? And he was able to share the reason for the hope that he has because of a soldier who started by not entering into the mess, but he sought to bless when he was reviled. That's what we're talking about here. In verse 12, he's still quoting Psalm 34. He says something really huge. Let's look at it again. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his eyes are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he says, if you bless those people who mistreat you, the eyes of the Lord are on you, which means his favor is on you. He says, he hears your your prayer, which sounds a lot like what he said about the husbands who mistreat their wives, right? If you mistreat your wives, the Lord's not going to hear your prayers, he says. So you better honor her and treat her well. And similarly, he says, If you treat them well, God's going to hear your prayers. But if you don't, he won't hear your prayer. He removes blessing, even to Christians. This applies to Christians too. It doesn't mean that you lose your salvation, your right standing with God, but you lose the blessing that is on your life. It's so important. It's so important. Now, in these final five verses, he he really turns our attention totally onto the Lord. This is super cool what he does here. Look with me at 13 and 14. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So he says, if you are zealous for what is good, then God is for you. God is for you. God's face is on you. He says, and if God is for you, who can harm you? Right? So have no fear. Do not be troubled. They're mistreating you. Don't be troubled, right? It brings us back to the big idea for today that we will survive the world's disapproval because we have our God and our church family's approval. If God is for you, what? Who can be against you? And God is for you if you respond well. But if you start to respond with mistreatment, with getting it right back at them, he removes it. So let's close with our last three verses. Look at 15 through through 17. 15 through 17, he says, But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So if God's will is for you to suffer, and many of us, most of us, will suffer in some capacity, some much more than others, like these folks here. This applies. This is so important. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Now the word for for honored there means sanctify. You've heard of that word before? To sanctify or to, to, to set apart. Right? He's your Lord. You set Him apart as your Lord. You set him apart as your Lord. Not your accusers. You don't need their approval. He is your approval. And so when they mistreat you, you don't care. He is the one who is my uh, approval. I find my worth in him, not in what they think about me. 
Set apart Christ as Lord. Honor Christ as Lord. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Make him your Lord. If you get consumed, you lie awake at night just being so concerned about what everybody else thinks about you, you're making them your Lord. You're making them God in your life. Because you're so consumed with what they have to say. And he says, set apart Christ as Lord. Christ as Lord. Now, in verse 15, Peter makes this massive assumption. He assumes that when you live this way, people are going to take notice. That's the assumption he makes. That they're going to see the hope that is within you in the midst of your mistreatment, in the midst of your suffering. He says, you better be prepared to say something. You better be prepared to give an answer because they're going to look at you and say, what? It wasn't a science experiment that explained creation. It was your life looking drastically different in the face of mistreatment. And they're going to say, what's that all about? Much like the soldier in the barracks. You look for opportunities to share Christ. You be ready when they, when they come. And then he says in verse 16 and 17, then you can have a good conscience because you have behavior that is honoring Christ. You have a, a lifestyle that is honoring to Christ when you look like this, when you live like this, because that's how Jesus was, right? Throughout this whole book, he tells you how to live, and he says, because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, here's how you live. And you live like that because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, here's how you live. It's all because of Jesus. Your behavior honors Christ and reflects Christ. When though you're reviled, you don't revile in return. He's hanging on the cross, dying for the people who are nailing him to the cross. He looks at them and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who does that? Who does that? Jesus does that. And by his power, we can do that. We can live these countercultural lives, living lives that do not make sense to the world. But the world doesn't need a faith that they can explain away. They need a faith that is different than anything they've ever seen before. And then we're going to make an impact. And so, mistreated out there, we don't revile because we know that we have God's approval and we're going to come in here. We're going to gather throughout the week. We're going to support each other. We're going to love each other. We're going to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We're going to hug together. We're going to have a family. We're going to have people who can relate with us because they go out there. They feel it too. That's what we need to be. We gather, we scatter. We gather, we scatter. We gather, supported, and we scatter to make an impact in our world that so desperately needs an impact. There's reasons why they mistreat you. It runs so much deeper than you. Don't take it too personally. It's sin. And you were a sinner, and God has saved you from that sin. And so have compassion and treat them well. When they treat you like you're worthless, treat them like they're priceless. Because they are. They're created in the image of God, and God has a plan for their lives. And maybe he's using you to take some hits so that you can melt their heart as you respond well and see them come to faith in Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for your word. So unbelievably practical for us. Lord, thank you for how you have given us something that gives us great hope. 
today. We thank you that you are our God and that you have made us for a relationship with you and though we've turned from you and began to sin and live as though you are nothing to us, you've pursued us, you've turned our hearts to you, you've called us, you've made us a chosen people, a holy priesthood, people called out for your own possession, we're yours, you died for us, and you resurrected to life so that we can follow and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that in view, Lord, may we suffer well. May we suffer in a way that reflects him, honors you. And may we gather well. May we be a community that's strong and healthy and holy. And in the weak spots, Lord, thank you that you've given us people who can fill those needs and, and, and strengthen us as a family. Do your work in us, Father. May we respond in this time. So do your work in us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.